This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Uh, I'm Mel Cranenberg and later on Backstory, the Inky Awards are an annual prize for young adult literature and the judges are all in their teens. The shortlist for this year's award was announced at the Bendigo Writers Festival Schools Program over the weekend and Rebecca Henson from the Centre for Youth Literature will join me to talk about the shortlisters, the award and what kinds of things the young judges were looking for in their reading material. But first, Brisbane-based author Sally Piper landed in Melbourne yesterday and I managed to catch her to talk about her latest novel, The Geography of Friendship, a story about friendship, hiking and women overcoming an entrenched fears to reclaim something they lost 20 years ago. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and back in 2014, Brisbane-based author Sally Piper was shortlisted for the Queensland Premier's Award for her debut novel, Grace's Table. Her latest book, The Geography of Friendship, follows three women as they hike through landscape, both literal and metaphorical, that they haven't trodden in more than two years decades. This is a story about uh, fractured relationships, hiking, of course, and women reclaiming spaces that, whether through real or perceived threats, feel unsafe. I caught up with Sally Piper just after she landed in Melbourne yesterday and asked her about how she crafted the characters in her book, about hiking solo and why we shouldn't give in to the fear of being outside. Sally Piper, Welcome to Backstory. Thank you, Mel, for having me. It's lovely to meet you. I really enjoyed the way you've portrayed female friendship in this book. It's not, I guess, a simple approach to friendship. This is very complicated. And in a way, I think the women in this book are almost different aspects of of, of essentially one character in a way. How did you come up with this concept and talk to me a little bit about creating the individual women in this book? Mm, That's really interesting, actually, that you did pick up that it's almost like three separate women in the one character. And that was quite intentional because these girls in this story who meet in high school are actually brought together by their differences, whereas many adolescent friendships form out of sameness. So they sort of form because they all dress or think or do the same things but the three characters in the geography of friendship came together out of their unique differences so one girl is an angry feisty girl and another girl is a a rule follower and another girl is a peacekeeper and the intention with creating them as these different three characters was that I actually think there's a little of each of these characters in all women. We're all angry when we need to be or we're all peacekeepers or real followers when we need to be. But with these characters, I wanted to pull those three major traits of women apart and look at them and see what they would do independently and do to one another when those three traits or qualities, however you'd like to look at them, are put under stress. 
So can you set the main narrative up for listeners so that they can get a real sense of what this book is about? Yeah, so it's about uh, the three women are called Samantha, Lisa and Nicole and as I said they meet in high school and at the end of high school they're seeking independence and adventure so they want to do something that they don't normally do so they decide they're going to go for a five-day hike through a wilderness area. And they get to the trailhead car park and they have an altercation with a man who is also doing a hike in the area and he sets off on the hike ahead of them and they follow knowing he's out there and then over the next five days things happen and as a consequence of those things that happen their friendship is in tatters by the end of it and it falls apart then they're no longer friends and then 24 years later Lisa they're all estranged and Lisa decides to bring them all back together again again as much to to do the hike again and it's as much to uh, make peace with themselves to make peace with their friendship and to make peace with the landscape that they're traveling across and so there's a a dual um, time narrative there's there's a hike 24 years earlier and there's the the hike of today and the the two time narratives are very bound together and you start 20 years on uh, from the perspective of Samantha who I must say I find the most empathetic of the characters and one that that has a real richness to her Um, Mm. the others kind of you know in a sense feel almost a little bit like kind of been frozen in these quite uh, you know in these I guess what would be perceived as stronger personas, whereas, you know, I guess Samantha's sort of softness uh, actually shows her strength in some ways in a a better sense. Um, But there's some things about her character that I just found profoundly moving. There's one point where I think um, she, as a, a mother of three children, just walks out uh, and, you know, leaves young kids at home and just goes for this hour-long walk and comes back and sort of reflects upon it as she's not sure who she is, the woman who went away or the woman who came back. And there's a lot of these kind of realisations of paradox in this character that that make her a really strong, rich character. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the development of that particular persona? Because I just think she's really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a, you're probably the first person who's really struck on the strength of her character character actually most people think of Lisa because she's angry so she's more dominant on the page and and Nicole because she's the real follower but Samantha's role is just pivotal to the story because she's she's the peacekeeper she's the one whose responsibility she saw was to keep them together and she believes she failed at that and she's taken that sense of needing to protect and keep people close and safe into her marriage and into to that of her children but as a consequences of the trauma of the experiences that they have on this hike she doesn't think she, she thinks she fails at those jobs and I think as, as many women, especially in motherhood, think they fail. And that was something I wanted to look at her and then the fact that she has three sons and the way she mothers sons as a consequence of these experiences, I think that was something that we, I was really interested in pulling apart as a mother of sons and myself. And, yeah, I just think it's a different sort of approach that she took to raising these boys as a consequence of the experiences that she had on the first hike. So no, I, I liked her character. There was a lot of stuff about body image with her, mm. which was really on many women's mind and how she, she sees herself. When she looks in the mirror, she sees a very large woman, but she's just a tall, statuesque woman. She's not necessarily extremely large, but her lack of confidence would make her see herself as something she isn't. 
And mm. you do get that reflection uh, of her in the other characters as well. So there's that sort of sense of frenemies, I guess, of these women that are, are kind of, in a sense, have been the mirror to her own self-doubt to a certain extent that, you know, sometimes we get frozen in those versions of ourselves from childhood, um, you know, the way other people look at us and internalise that. Mm. And I kind of got that sense that those the other two women maybe, you know, reflected those things upon her as well. Yeah, possibly more the friend, the the other children at school did yeah mm-hmm. they yes yeah absolutely there is another kind of um and I'm, I'm sorry to keep talking about this one character but there was so much richness especially in the opening sort of scenes of the that character pass the narrative baton mm. between the characters and you get their perspectives uh, on each other and on the kind of journey that they're about to take, both metaphorical and literal. Uh, But I think there's, you know, one moment when, uh, you know, the character of Samantha reflects upon the the first time she meets her husband and it's this description of waking up after, you know, she's kind of drunkenly picked him up somewhere (laughs) and not being quite sure of who he is and having this large bear of a man take up more than half of the bed um, and having that momentary, who is this? has an odd kind of symmetry with, you know, where she's at in her marriage 20 years on, Mm. uh, that actually this sense of, you know, sharing your bed with a stranger, um, you know, is something that she started to really feel about uh, where she's at. It's a lot more complicated than that, though. Mm. And and it's... She... um they all make bad choices, these girls, and, you know, they're, they're imperfect women and that was important that I portrayed them as, as being imperfect as well as we are. That's what it is to be human. And, and when she picked up a husband, uh, she did look at that and wondered if it was a bad choice. But um, she also saw safety there. She recognised safety when she'd had bad choices made in the past that didn't demonstrate safety to her. Yeah. I thought uh, the character of Nicole is is really intriguing as well, as is Lisa, but for different reasons. Uh, Nicole at one stage, though, is reflecting, in fact, in her opening scenes, she reflects upon Lisa, the the angry part of the group, I guess, who, you know, maybe uh, was the trigger in in the minds of the other women for the events that unravel their friendship uh, and to a certain extent their lives Mm. Um, but Nicole kind of is reflecting on how Lisa's change from anger to equanimity sort of is affecting her in a a really strange way and I thought that's a really interesting thing Mm. when you know um, the changing dynamics in a friendship group uh, have such a profound effect on you know the other members of it. Uh, What were you trying to illustrate with this particular sort of observation? With Nicole's um, character it was she's probably the the least able to get to know within the story because she has great reservations she she always believed if she followed the rules that society would follow the rules and she felt let down when when that failed to happen for her and she has she's one of these people that goes through with almost like a predictable behaviour and predictable actions and that's that for her is safe. So to have Lisa get them all back together and Lisa is no longer, can she see the woman or the young girl, young woman that she was when they did the first hike, that unravels Nicole because she sees change and it starts to realise how little she has changed, that she was marked by those experiences from 24 years earlier and 
Lisa's ability to look and to try and improve makes Nicole realise that she's failed to. And so I think it's a bit of a confrontation to Nicole to, to think that how how she's allowed her her life to become stagnant in many ways. Yeah. yeah, and in some ways that's maybe a reflection of the deep trauma that she's experienced, mm. that there's sort of an element of, of arrested development in in her, which is because she's, you know, she's been frozen by, mm. you know, her inability to totally process what has happened to her, which, you know, maybe is a reflection of the fact that, you know, and without getting into too much detail of the yeah. events, um, you know, of how necessary it is to process such great trauma and, and how difficult that can be. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I remember speaking to someone about the the story and and they were talking about, um, is it going to unsettle people to read this story? And I I said to her that it could, but it could also be quite cathartic as well, that if you write about the trauma that women experience and people who read that story, if they've had similar or comparable experiences, then then they can become their story. So I think it can be sort of also used as a cleansing process in some way to come to grips with that trauma because there's a, an enormous legacy that comes with any sort of trauma that especially women that they experience. You know, it happens in the past, but it it dictates who we are now and it dictates who we are in the fu- future as well. And so trauma has a long tail. And I think I say that in the novel and it's learning to live beyond that. And even though it's never going to be taken out of your person, that experience that you've had, it's being able to build a, a new world around it and with it there with you, but not to let it dominate how you live, which Nicole has struggled with all along. Yeah. So let's uh, now talk about the, the third character, the instigator, if you like, Lisa, who is the reason that they're all together and in the minds of the other two, perhaps the reason why. in the sense that she um, epitomises something that you don't often see portrayed in women, which is that kind of externalised anger, something that maybe, you know, the Me Too movement now is more of a reflection of people Mm. actually talking up, placing the anger outside of themselves rather than doing that thing that... Internalizing anger or turning it on themselves. She is angry at the world. She externalises that. You know, the reaction then that she gets from that probably says more about the world than it does about her. Talk to me about Lisa. She's she's really an interesting yeah, character. Yeah, she's, well, she's the one most people are, are polarised by. They either love her or hate her because she is an angry woman and and a, yeah, an angry girl. She's an only child within her family growing up and she had fairly um, loose parameters that she grew up within so was free pretty much to do most things that she chose to do which was she always sort of pushed against that. She wanted to have parameters but they were never given to her so she made the most of not having them. But angry women uh, make demands on people and that's why they're not liked because they make demands that men particularly haven't had to have made upon them before and expect a response from or or an action to. So I was it was important that I did do her do an angry character in here because I think it is as you talk about the me too and you know people have talked to me about that and said well you know is it a me too story that was your intention when you wrote it and I actually wrote it well before me too had a name 
and certainly didn't have the momentum that it has now. But Me Too's always been there. We just haven't had the name or the momentum that goes with it. So I did, I wanted to look at my own anger. People ask me, who am I? Which character am I? When my friends say, when they've read the book, so who are you? And I say, well, I'm all three of them. And I'm often Lisa. I'm often angry if I, because I'm a mostly solo bushwalker, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But, um, you know, I sometimes feel angry about not being able to do that loved activity on my, without feeling this sense of risk to do it. So she's just a little bit of what is in all women that we don't always allow out. Yeah. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to the author of The Geography of Friendship, Sally Piper. Sally, uh, we do have to talk about hiking, <laughs> very definitely. I love hiking. Uh, one of the things that really comes out in this book is, you know, a sense of a, of a solo female hiker. So although these three women are allegedly hiking together, very much they are hiking alone. And I don't think that that is an unintentional metaphor here. <laughs> talk to me about the importance of, you know, hiking as a metaphor in this book. Mm, well, I am emotionally solo woman bushwalker um and it was for me it was I'm also a nature lover so the the landscape aspects of the novel and and there's uh, there's a lot about the landscape in there it's it's a love affair with this landscape but it's also a nightmare with this landscape so the three girls when they come back to this environment it's making peace with that landscape and um, I've always been interested in this intersection between history and geography so that land that carries the history of a bad experience that we it almost possesses us that landscape we never lose the sense of that landscape because it's the site of, of evil or badness or or just a bad experience that we can't seem to grow beyond so for to bring these characters back to this landscape was also about making peace with that landscape for them. And I haven't had the same experiences, fortunately, that these women have had when they've on within the story. But I've certainly been threatened or faced adversity when I've been out work, walking on my own. And mainly around suburbs, actually, is um, where there's cars, there's always more problems to walk around suburbs where cars are because there's, you know, all sorts of things happen. People shout things, they blast their horn right beside you, they drive too close, they bang their hands on the sides of the cars and and walking is also a part of writing for me. So when I need to work out anything that's not working with my writing, I go out and walk. So often when I walk, I'm quite distracted. So these things, when they happen, these loud noises, horns and things like that, startle me and often I nearly fall just because I'm distracted. So I only walk in the bush now and I go into distant bush trails around where I live in Brisbane State Forest and feel I feel quite comfortable there, but I know that I am taking a risk by being there. And interestingly, people, friends of mine who, who know that I do this question it and they can't disguise sometimes that they think I'm foolish for doing these things. And where the geography of friendship is set, which is very loosely set on Wilson's Promontory in Victoria. Did you pick that? (laughs) (laughs) I was guessing it might be. Yeah, well, I grew up in Victoria and I first started bushwalking, walking on Wilson's Promontory. And I decided to set it there because I knew Wilson's Promontory in its less trammelled state. I knew it before it became really popular. I was quite tiny when I went there. And so I thought, right, I can picture this place from a setting perspective um, with time shift from from prior to when it is now, which is busier because more human impact upon it and more people visiting it. 
But when I started to write the novel with Wilson's Promontory in mind, even though I don't name it because I completely deconstruct the landscape and people who know Wilson's Promontory would know that it's not actually there in in truth because I've removed the lighthouse for one thing. But um, but so when I started to write about it, I, I struggled to get this shift from this place that I knew so nostalgically as this ideal place, this beautiful place where I had really fond memories and I had to suddenly make it a menacing place. Um, and the terrain was had to become more harsh for these girls. So that's when I decided I'd, I'd head back there and I did a solo five-day hike around there. And people questioned the sense of me doing that. And so that was actually the very first research for this novel. I do yeah. want to pick that up a little bit because there's a couple of things that immediately occur to me. The first one is that, you know, the Australian landscape plays a very important role in Australian literature. And thinking about things like Picnic at Hanging Rock, obviously set mm. in a very different kind of area, um, Wood End, for example. I think that, you know, the, the sense that obviously in that book is evoked is that, you know, European settlement, um, you know, for some people creates this discomfort with a, a with a landscape, you know, that's stolen, basically. Mm. Um, that sense that, you know, that we don't belong literally in this place. Um, you know, Miranda in Picnic at Hanging Rock, um, you know, is very much depicted in this kind of almost wood sprite sense mm. because she, you know, has kind of been absorbed into the landscape in a much more comfortable way. Uh, I get the feeling that these characters are at odds with their landscape in that mm. in that same way, mm. um, which is something I do want you to pick up. But the second thing I want to talk about is this notion of women being unsafe outside of the house, which, you know, and very much in these characters' minds, they're safe in the domestic space, they're safe at home, but out there in this unknown landscape, they are unsafe. And actually the statistics of our lives, um, you know, any research that you do, suggests the complete opposite mm. is true. Mm. Uh, home is the dangerous place for women. Mm. Um, outside is actually probably vastly safer. But does that, you know, it kind of evokes a sense of terrorism in mm. a way. Mm. Um, the fact that we're made to feel scared of outside is a form of terrorism that keeps women inside where, in fact, it's kind of unsafe. I'd love you to address both of those things. Yeah. Um, sorry to kind of throw no, that big load um, at you. but they're... they're um questions that are very dear to my heart because um, I think as women, speaking specifically to the three characters with um, your first question with how they um, connect with this landscape, they feel like trespassers there. They've been made to feel that they don't belong, that they shouldn't be there, not just by the landscape and their own ability to navigate it, but by the man in the car car park before they set off that um they know he's out there they sense him um he's not that they see him very often he's a very th thinly drawn character really so but they they know he's there and he becomes a boogeyman he becomes the fear that is inherent in all women and um it's not that i call him the everyman because most men are good men, but he could be any man and that is how I want him portrayed. I think from my own perspective with this whole fear thing and it's something I think about an enormous amount because I feel safer on a distant bush trail than I would in my own home for a personal, not because of my husband, he's, he's, he's a good man, but just home invasions, anything. You know, to me, suburbia is the, is the jungle. For me, bush is the tranquility and the peacefulness and that's why I seek it out all the time. But it's fear, 
is something, well, Cheryl Strayed says in her book, Wild, she says, fear is a story that we tell ourselves. And she's dead right. One and, and another author whose work I read, Robin Davidson, who wrote Track, she said that women have used cowardice to protect themselves for so long it has become a habit of mind. And so for me, the first reason I wrote this book was actually for me. I wanted to break down that habit of mind. And even though I write towards the thing that I fear, that my vulnerability will come up against the ill intent of somebody when I'm on a remote bush trail, to write towards that and to break it down and to pull it apart and to see where that fear came from actually allowed me to walk away from it. And I walk on my own more and more as a consequence of it because it made me realise I, I would stop and think, well, you know where is the risk here it's it's there is no risk here and the people I pass are people who are just doing something that they enjoy doing the same as I doing and that my imagination had led me in many respects to to fear something that I love doing and to to restrict doing that and I think women allow this fear and as you say say the statistics are such that we we're quite safe in many environments outdoors but it because of the fear, we self-limit ourselves and we live much smaller lives as a consequence of that. And that's what I wanted to push back against when I wrote this book. I really feel like that's what you're doing with this. Yeah. I especially love because, you know, it might be questioned uh, the, the choice of a group of women to go back to a place where something so horrific has happened. But actually, to my mind, this is exactly the book that we need, which is I will walk the streets Mm. at night. I will walk Mm. in those spaces. And, you know, one act of one bad person is not going to stop that. Um, I very much thought about Eurydice Dixon while reading this book and about the fact that something very real and horrific happened to that young woman. Mm. Um, But I have actually used that in a way as a, um, you know, a flag to wave when I continue to walk home alone mm. at night um, and to do so without uh, feeling like I should in any way apologise for, for doing that. Mm. Um, reading this book actually made me feel as though uh, that's possible, that actually uh, women should reclaim these spaces and, and, you know, take back the fear that's been instilled, instilled into us, into I guess, us. in a yeah. sense, that, yeah. you know, those acts of terrorism have, you know, helped to create. And they are acts of terrorism. It's, it's anything that keeps another person fearful keeps them disempowered and it is about power and control and and you know it's great I think that if you've come away from reading that and feel that you can push back against that fear as well as I did excellent (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this is a great book Um, it's a book uh, about the sort of challenges of of complicated friendships Uh, it's a book about hiking obviously and and deeply it's also about a book about women reclaiming um, their ability to go out and be independent in the world Um, thank you so much for it Sally Piper I am wondering though I do have to ask this question you know, is it likely that you're you're going to be writing a hiking memoir anytime soon because I will definitely read that (laughs) I think um, perhaps where you'll see my my love of nature, the natural world, is hopefully in the next book. It's just that nature connects, like, or I connect with nature in in such a close way that I think um, I think it'll probably find its way into another novel. Absolutely, yeah. your descriptions of, of nature are just gorgeous. Even if there's the, you know the kind of implied menace in this particular yeah. book, uh, you really do have a, a very keen eye for things, and it it made me want to immediately go out and hike, which may not be um, what <laughs> others derive from this book, but I certainly hope they do. Oh, I hope so too. Uh, thank you, Mel. Sally Piper. Thank you so much for joining us on Backstory. Yeah, thanks, Mel, very much. 
You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to 3RRR's Backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg and in my opinion, some of the most perceptive readers are in their teens. Young adult literature has to work hard to make sure these fast young minds are kept in good reading material, which they tend to burn through quite quickly. The Inky Awards are a reminder of this. Uh, the annual prize winner is chosen by a teen judging panel and the 2018 Inky Award shortlist uh, was announced at the Bendigo Writers' Festival last weekend, the first time this has actually happened. I'm joined today by Rebecca Henson from the Centre for Youth Literature uh, to talk a little bit about the Inky Awards. Rebecca, welcome to Backstory. Thank you very much, Mel. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And I'm really keen to find out a little bit more about how this process works. Um, Can you tell me a bit about the Inky Awards so that those who haven't heard of them before have a bit more of a sense of how they work? Sure. Um, The Inky Awards are an annual award. Um, They are run by the Centre for Youth Literature at State Library Victoria, but they're a national awards. Um, and they've been running since since 2007, so they've got a bit of history now as well, which is fantastic. Um, the really in- exciting thing about the Inky Awards, though, is that they are the only teen choice awards for young adult literature. Yeah, that's really amazing. And I, I'm sort of keen to learn a little bit more about the judges. Uh, firstly, how do you select uh, the teen judging panel for these awards? Uh, it's a... Um, it's quite a lengthy process. Um, it's basically um, we put out a call out for young people aged between 12 and 18 if they would like to apply to become an inky judge. Um, so they have to uh, answer certain criteria. I mean, they're fairly sort of broad questions, you know, why do you want to be interested Um, have you got the stamina to do it kind of questions because it's quite an arduous process. Um, They can either apply with a written response or a video response. All of those applications get reviewed by staff at the Centre for Youth Literature and we create a shortlist to then interview um, those applicants who we think um, have got potential um, because the judges' applications can can come from anywhere around Australia, um, the interviews might possibly be over Skype um, because they're interstate from us. We're based in Melbourne, of course. Um, and then um, they get selected based on the, the application and the interview. Um, and we end up with ideally seven judges from all around Australia, a mix of ages within that broader age group. Um, and preferably um, as many, you know, a good mix of boys and girls and, you know, not skewed to one way or the other. That's great. Can you talk a little bit about who was chosen this year for the awards? Yes. Um, so we do tend to, even though we're, we're keen to have people from all around Australia, um, we do find that we do have more Victorian judges. Um, it's just the, um, I guess, you know, logistically it's, it tends to be easier for people who are based in Melbourne or even Victoria to apply um, because of the, the work that they end up doing. Um, it's not just judging the or choosing this, the shortlist initially. That's, that's the main job of the judges. Um, but we also try to get them some other work as well. Um, so they 
we try to get them involved in writers' festivals. Um, so, you know, there's other, there's other activities and we find that we do have more people from Melbourne applying. Um, but this year we've got... Um, uh, we've got a terrific range. Um, we've got um, a very young, uh, young judge, aged only twelve, so he's at their sort of entry level end. Oh, that's end. wonderful. That's not even in their teens. <laughs> yeah, that's excellent. It's fantastic, and he's he's very articulate. That's Luca, and Luca was involved last week in announcing the shortlist at the Bendigo Writers Festival Schools Day. Um, also, along to that event, we had tea who is also Melbourne-based because in this instance they were travelling to Bendigo, easier for someone around this area than from Queensland, say. Um, And T is a terrifically um, intelligent and articulate young woman who is, I think she's 15. Um, We find that most of the judges tend to be in that sort of 15, 16 age group. Um, But then we've got some country kids as well, and and we we're also interested in um, having uh, you know having a a representative panel so uh, from diverse backgrounds and um, diverse cultures as well so um, um, you know we've we've got kids from all kinds of backgrounds really. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, I'm really interested in what uh, the judging panel was looking for when it came to young adult literature. One of the truisms that's really started to emerge uh, over the years that I guess that category has been such a big marketing category, YA literature, has been that a lot of the readers of YA literature are actually adults mm-hmm. uh, and not even necessarily young adults. I have certainly, and, and I'm sure many other people who are in the slightly older older adult category have very much enjoyed uh, what is classified as young adult literature. And my understanding of that is that that usually the YA category is often, you know, the age of the protagonist uh, and, you know, perhaps some of the language use in it as well. What is perhaps different about um, what actual young audiences are interested in or young readers are interested in versus, you know, maybe older readers, do you think? Mm. I think another um, defining characteristic of young adult literature um, is the themes, so the, the types of stories and the types of um, situations that the protagonists might find themselves in. Um, and that is certainly something that appeals to younger readers because, as we all know, it's fantastic when you're reading something and you can identify with what's happening to the characters or where they're situated or what their challenges are etc um and I think um and yet yeah YA literature does have such a strong adult following as well I mean I'm certainly in that category I'm not a teenager anymore but I read a lot of YA books um uh, and I think um again I think it comes back to the storylines um they tend to be um quite sort of people oriented you know there's a, the the themes are uh sort of looking at how how people grow or what can happen in life and what what changes your direction or what influences you have you know these are all really human aspects which yeah. appeal across the board 
I think there's a presumption sometimes as well about, uh, you know, what kinds of things you're supposed to write about for young people. And I think some of the most challenging uh, topics are covered in this area, things about, you know, identity, culture, race, um, racism, uh, you know, fitting in, um, mental health issues, really challenging ones. Uh, You know, I think people forget just the level of of stuff that young people have to deal with. Uh, And quite often in YA literature, I find this incredibly, you know, they really go into the tough stuff in a way that sometimes maybe, uh, you know, in adult literature, people pull their punches a little more. Is that something that you've sort of found commented upon within, you know, within this kind of, uh, I guess, judging context? Oh, definitely. And I think um, certainly one area where that gets picked up a lot and discussed is in relation to, of course, teenagers are still going to school. And one of the things that you do at school is you study English um, and hopefully you've got it, you're going to a school where there's still a library and there's still library staff. Um, and yet, as you say, Mel, some of the... Um, some of the themes in some books are pretty full on um, and some adults have an issue or, you know, find that challenging to find to, to think that young people are reading about, um, you know, things that they that older people just assume, oh, oh, that's too challenging, that's too sophisticated and yet it's right bang exactly reflecting the experiences of of a lot of young people so there's often a lot of conversation around um whether certain YA books are appropriate to have in school or to study at school and when you talk to some YA authors who uh you know a lot of them will go and do school talks and that kind of thing and sometimes there's a conversation about what they can talk about and what's regarded as that's a little bit too dicey let's not talk about that here while we're in school so there's this navigating that has to happen quite often between what um what young adult people themselves are interested in reading and that's known because, you you know, there's that feedback, like they're they're quite capable of of saying that. Um, And then what adults, you know, how adults want to filter that and what adults think is actually appropriate. You know, there's just sometimes there's a mismatch and that's that's an ongoing situation that um, it's still in the process of being resolved, I suppose, as YA literature becomes more and more popular. Um, you know, um, some of us crusty old types are just going to have to get used to the fact that um, teens can have really complicated lives and they are quite capable of processing um, some quite challenging themes, especially if they're dealt with um, in a really, um, uh, you know, there's some some authors who are just so talented and and they're quite capable of writing about those themes in a way that's accessible for younger readers without, uh, you know, uh, without it be becoming too hard to handle or, or, or just too confronting or whatever. Mm. You know, they, they're, they're really good at it. Absolutely. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I've been joined by Rebecca Henson from the Centre of Youth Literature and we're talking about the Inky Awards, which are a unique award for young adult literature judged by uh, teens and at this point someone even younger, a 12-year-old, is involved in the the seven-person judging panel. Um, 
It's probably uh, best to talk a little bit about um, the, the shortlist um, that's come up. Are there any books in particular uh, that you think are worth mentioning? And, and for those who are interested, um, this was already announced uh, at the Bendigo Writers' Festival this past weekend. Is there anywhere people can go and look this up to find out a little bit more about the, the, the group of um, shortlistees on this year's award? Um, you can certainly have a look at the shortlist itself. Um, the Centre for Youth Literature runs a website called Inside a Dog and um, the shortlist is published there. Um, it's also available if, you, if you're interested and you want to follow Inside a Dog on our social media streams. We've got um, Instagram, Facebook and, and, and Twitter channels happening there. But the main... Um, the main place is the Inside a Dog website. Um, and just incidentally, Mel, I mentioned seven judges earlier. That's our average. But this year we've actually got a bumper team with nine. <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I've noticed a couple of books. Um, there's the Gold Inky Award uh, shortlist and also the Sylvie, Silver Inky Award shortlist. And um, there's a couple on the Gold Award list that that I think are just cracking in the dark spaces by Kelly Black, which mm. I just absolutely loved it's dark yeah um but it's you know sort of this um you know futuristic dystopian set in outer space there's like a strange kind of bird-like sort of society mm. where um you know there's only this kind of almost you know i guess a sense of a female gender um that exists within that society it's a really interesting well created and very dark um book but in all the wonderful ways, uh, and Kath Crowley's uh, Take Three Girls, which I think has already been honoured with a few awards. Um, that's a, a really great book too. These are, oh, sorry, that's uh, Kath Carol, Crowley, um, Simone Howell and Fiona Wood. Um, it's really, really great um, work. So that's, um, there's some great things in that. Uh, I wish I could talk more about these things. There's, there's plenty to talk about. Uh, and also I love this idea that the children um, and, you know, young adults and teens can find their way to books um, in ways that aren't necessarily filtered um, by, you know, by the adults in their lives because, you know, they can be discerning as well. Um, so, Rebecca Henson, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory to talk about these important things. Oh, it's my pleasure, Mel. And can I just say that um, the public voting is actually open now um, in order to choose the winners, the gold winner and the silver winner. So if you're in the age category, hop on to our website, Inside a Dog, and please cast your vote. Can you uh, let our listeners know what the age category is as well so that, that they oh, can okay. direct so, people? Yeah, so the voters have to be aged 12 to 18 as well. It's teens all the way through. This is <laughs> so wonderful. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much. Thank you, Mel. The Melbourne International Film Festival is in its final week with many popular screenings selling out. This weekend, catch surprise screenings. Won't You Be My Neighbour, a heartwarming documentary about revolutionary children's television host Fred Rogers. Surprise screening is Saturday, 1.30pm at Hoyt's Melbourne Central. And Searching, an edge-of-your-seat thriller starring John Cho, is on Sunday, 4.15pm at Hoyt's Melbourne Central. Plus... Encore screenings of Cold War, one of MIF's most in-demand films, Saturday 7.15pm in the Forum Theatre. And audience favourite, First Reformed, starring Ethan Hawke, Saturday 9.30pm at Hoyt's Melbourne Central. For bookings, head to miff.com.au. Triple R Sponsors. 
Well, that brings us uh, pretty much to the end of another backstory. It's incredible how quickly this hour just flies by with such incredible things to talk about um, in our wonderful world of literature. Um, Just incredible. I'd love to thank my guest today, uh, Sally Piper, and of course, Rebecca Henson. Um, And I just hope uh, those of you who are listening who may have young people in your lives or if you're a person between the age of 12 and 18 yourself, please hop on and um, do some voting on the Inky Awards. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.